Well, hey, welcome. It's good to see you. If everybody could just scoot in to make room for other people who don't have seats. Oh, um, you guys are hardcore. I'm like pretty impressed. Uh, I had a really challenging walk here today. Almost didn't make it. Um, well, hey, it's the new year, which is super fun because uh, we start wondering all kinds of things. We start wondering. How's this year going to go? Um, what's going to happen uh, that, I, that I don't know yet? Uh, how many times do I have to go to the gym uh, to, before I can bail and uh, still feel like I made a good effort at meeting my New Year's <laughs> resolutions? Um, maybe you're wondering what the likelihood is of your neighbors noticing that your Christmas lights are still up in March. Um, or maybe you're thinking, can I pass off Christmas lights as uh, a socially acceptable form of celebrating President's Day? I, it, all of those things might be on your mind. Or, like, how soon can I file my taxes without looking too desperate for a return? Um, anyway, we, we wonder lots of things. But New Year's is also the, the very stressful uh, stretch of time where you start wondering the very important question, uh, how long is it socially expected to keep up the Christmas cards that everybody sent me? Um, now, here's the Bowen 2015 Christmas card. My wife ordered 50 of these bad boys, and uh, she was on her way to personalizing uh, notes to 50 different people. And somewhere along the way, she had this existential crisis where she kind of just broke down and said, you know what? Everybody we care about knows what we look like. And so we sent none of them. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how many. How many notes did you get done, babe? Ten, ten, ten. I'd quit be- way before ten. So well done, love. Um, so yeah, we've mailed none of them. So if you're wondering, like, did we get snubbed by the Bowens? No, we just didn't. We just sent none of these because at some point my wife started feeling like I just it feels like I'm handing out like headshots for an audition to different friendships. Like, what are we auditioning for anyway? Are we auditioning for handsomest couple on the refrigerator, most pithy cr- Christmas saying? Uh, and the the, th- the funny thing about Christmas cards is the image we portray of our ourselves is like us at our best, isn't it? Like all Christmas cards are us like looking cute and fun. And uh, if we're portraying something closer to us at our normal, it would be like pictures of piles of laundry or pictures like this, where my kids pose naturally, but they also run around with underwear on their heads in my house. So like that's more like us at our normal. Um, And so, you know, the, the the, the reality is I love Christmas cards. We have a dozen of them on our front door, you know, on, on the inside. So we, we, we leave the house with gratitude. We pray for people on our way. We love Christmas cards. We might even try sending them again next year. We'll see. I, I'd say that cautiously. But I bring all of this up uh, as an illustration of the fact that we live in a very cult, uh, image-obsessed culture. We're, we're obsessed with maintaining the way people see us. In fact, if, if you want to manage the way people view you, if you want to have some control over the image people have of you, there is an app for that. Whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or Vine, might as well just start posting everything with hashtag us at our best. Hashtag me looking good. And so whether it's portraying the image of ourselves that is super fit, like selfie in workout gear, or it's a a, a image of ourselves that's super spiritual, like hashtag blessed, picture of my Bible, or just even a picture that tells people, I know what's going on in the foodie world of Portland. Like, what did we do before we could tell everybody what we ate over a picture? Anyway, 
The reality is that this desire to be seen at our best, this, this constant upkeep of our image, is not just a modern problem that's exacerbated by technology. In fact, it's a human problem, and it's actually something that Jesus uh, uses some of his most challenging words uh, to describe, as we'll see today. Uh, if you're new with us, we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we've been doing this for a couple of years now, and so we, we've kind of teach through some sections and take a break, and then teach through some more sections and take a break, and we're about to enter into another 12-week section of Luke, and, and, uh, and this is this place in the Gospel where Jesus is starting to say some pretty challenging things about what it means to follow him. And so, if you're new with us, let me just catch you up really quick on kind of the big picture of Luke, kind of the way it is organized is the first opening four chapters show Jesus and put him forward as this fulfillment of God's promise to Israel to restore Israel and also heal the world through him. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he, he, all the things that are happening in the first four chapters are reminding us of all the promises in the Old Testament. And, and John the Baptist kind of reminds us of Samuel the prophet. And Jesus comes on the scene reminding us of David, that God's doing a new work of ousting an old king and installing his anointed king. And then we get into chapter 4 where Jesus kind of gives his his Nazareth manifesto, his his uh, great manifesto of what his kingdom mission is. And he says that the spirit of God has anointed him to preach the gospel, the good news to the poor and the outcasts and the marginalized. And then really from chapter 4 through 9 we see Jesus actually going to all the people he's mentioned. The, the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed and he's healing them and he's announcing God's reign and his rule and he's showing people that that God's kingdom has come all up here in this region of Galilee. Then at the end of chapter 9, in verse 51, we see Jesus make a decision where he turns resolutely towards Jerusalem. He decides that he must go to Jerusalem to accomplish his mission. And so chapters 9 through 19 is a very slow journey toward Jerusalem, where we see character after character come to Jesus with a question or a comment. And Jesus takes that opportunity to respond with a teaching that helps the reader understand what it means to actually be his disciple, to follow him. And so he, he shows us in this what's traditionally called the journey section, he shows us what it means to join Jesus on his kingdom journey, to be a part of his kingdom and, and do life with him. And so today we're going to pick up where we left off, the end of chapter 11, verse 37. So if you have a Bible, open it to chapter 11, Gospel of Luke, verse 37, and we're going to jump right in today. And so, Luke says this, When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. And so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not wash before the meal. I'm rarely surprised when my kids don't wash before the meal. Right? We just dive in. Um, I, I need you to understand something here. That, that You might think, well, what's so shocking about somebody not washing their hands? I guess that's a little bit dirty. But the issue wasn't Jesus' lack of hygiene. The issue that the Pharisees noticed was that Jesus did not actually uh, wash ceremonially. He, he, he set aside uh, the cultural expectation for washing for ritual purity. 
And so the person who's in shock here is a Pharisee. And the Pharisees are a group of people who came about during the kind of the, the centuries just before Jesus was born. And his shock is actually fairly reasonable in his own cultural setting. This Pharisee is looking at Jesus and he's seeing this rabbi, this guy who's supposed to be close to God, and he's setting aside ritual purity. He's setting aside something that the Pharisees have made very important. You see, the Pharisees come, came about, well, Israel was back in the land after exile, but they were still a conquered people. And so they were being ruled by Gentiles. And so the Pharisees wanted to see their, the nation's fortune, fortunes restored. They wanted to see God deliver them from their sins and to see their enemies destroyed. Now, what do you do, though, when you cannot control what is happening to your people nationally? You do everything you can to control what's happening to you personally. And so the Pharisees focused on maintaining a ritualistic purity since so much of the nation was defiled. And they thought if we can be pure and and act out of purity, uh, we will actually contribute to the nation being delivered. See, the temple was a sham. Uh, The political leaders were corrupt. And the foreign occupation forces that were all around them were defiled and unclean Gentiles. And so what the Pharisees did was they took the first five books of Moses, the Torah, in the Bible, and they added a multitude of extra rules and regulations and restrictions and purity laws found in what is now called the Mishnah, which came about after the time of Jesus, but all of the codifying and ensuring the ritual purity was around during the time of Jesus, and it was extra to what was in the Bible. And so they did all of this to stay as far away from being possibly spiritually contaminated in any way possible. And so when Jesus skips washing the prescribed washings, uh, prescribed by the Mishnah at the afternoon meal, the Pharisees are shocked They look at Jesus, not because he has dirt on his hands, but because he forsakes purity in their mind. And so the shock is something that we can relate to. It's something that we would expect culturally that goes against the grain of of just a fundamental assumption. So like when you leave a table and somebody purposefully doesn't tip the waiter, you're shocked, right? Like nobody does this except for real cheapskates. Right? And so they're looking at Jesus and they're thinking, you have absolutely just gone against something we believe to, to be important to the core. And so we see why here in verse 39. This is what Jesus says. And the Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish. But inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. See, it's important, too, that Luke calls Jesus the Lord, too. Just because Jesus has set aside the the, the purity uh, prescription of Mishnah does not mean that his actual holiness is damaged in any way. Luke is saying, this is the Lord, this is holiness in person. And so look at what Jesus does here. He uses this metaphor to describe the spiritual conditions of this pharisaical way of life. And he says, you're like somebody who only cleans the outside of a dish, which is pointless because the only reason you need to clean a dish is to clean out the inside. 
Um, how many people in the room are the dishwashers in the house? Anybody? Uh, okay, Bowen men have been cleaning dishes for as long as I am aware. Right? And this is my gig in the house. And there are times when I don't love doing it. Right? But, uh, and by the way, which is the worst dish to clean? Anybody? Any guesses? Crock pots. Worst dish. Like, I love what comes out of the slow cooker, but the whole time I'm eating going like, oh man, I am so anxious about having to clean out what's stuck to the sides of that thing, right? And so then you do the strategy of, I'm going to let it soak, babe, right? I'm going to let it soak. You're going to finish that dish? It's soaking. It's soaking. It's soaking. Wow. My wife doesn't buy it anymore. She's like, yeah. You know what also works? Scrubbing. <clears throat> so there are times when after doing all the dishes and I come to the slow cooker, I kind of skimp a little. I clean a little faster, you know. Um, and uh, next time Lauren goes to put something in a crock pot, she finds like little crusties, you know, on the side. And she's like, what were you thinking? If I could be honest, it's just like I was tired of doing dishes. And so it, appearing like I got the job done felt more important than actually getting the job done. And so I moved on. Or I just gave up. And so Jesus is saying, look, you Pharisees are so obsessed with appearing pure and clean and morally commendable that you are nearly blind to the filth that's actually underneath. The inside of the crock pot, you guys, is full of old moldy bits of pot roast. What's actually inside you is greed and wickedness. And so you're managing appearances, by failing, uh, but you're also failing to manage your soul. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying your heart's like a cesspool. It's actually the opposite of clean, even though you're keeping up the religious appearances. What's really going on is your heart has been given over to inordinate loves, like the love of money. And so that's why he says they're full of greed. Or this love for reputation. We'll see in just a minute that he criticizes them for loving the best seats and warm greetings from other people. And so Jesus says, look, I'll show you the path to being clean. You're actually dirty, but the path to being clean is, he says this, but now as for what's inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. The ESV says, but give alms, a bit, give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. And so what Jesus is saying, look, is if you're, if you have a context of greed spiritually, then the, the path to cleansing is to repent of that, first of all, and then to live out of generosity, giving from the heart with a joy and an inner compulsion, not because you have to for the sake of appearances. And so this this isn't what they're doing. The Pharisees are doing the opposite of this. And so Jesus says to them in verse 42, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Biblically speaking, Israel was commanded to give a tithe, a 10% of their, uh, their income and their, their produce of their land. And so it's a principle that Jesus doesn't argue with. He, he doesn't try to undo the tithe. And in fact, the Pharisees are experts at tithing their garden herbs. Tiny little portions of mint. Like, God needs help making tzatziki. Like, 
I don't know what's going on there, but they, they, they could get it really fine and give a tenth of tiny little things. And at the same time, Jesus observes that while their window gardens are being appropriately tied, their neighbors are being oppressed and misused. They've focused entirely on the minutiae and details and neglected the majors, the justice and the love of God. I want to point something out here in this section that that, that is a principle that that Jesus is is teaching, and I think this is important for us. See, Jesus refuses to elevate external behaviors over the internal matters of the heart, on one hand. And yet, on the other hand, Jesus refuses to pit external behaviors against the heart. Um, First of all, Jesus refuses to elevate external behaviors over the heart. And that's exactly what a legalistic religion does. Legalism says, essentially, what matters is the external behavior. If you do the right things, you will be approved and accepted. And if you notice, kids who are raised in a legalistic environment have incredible prowess at appearing good. They know the right answers. They know how to appear as if They're meeting all of your expectations. But they don't feel free to make a mistake. They cannot fail and they cannot own failure. And so when you catch them in something, it's always somebody else's fault. And this is so because their understanding of acceptance from the people that they love is considered conditional based solely on their performance. Religious performance, sports performance, academic performance. There are all kinds of legalisms. And so, in other words, what legalism does is it appeals to one of two motivations. Legalism always appeals to either a pride or fear. It appeals to fear by saying, meet these expectations, meet these external behaviors, or else, or else I'll remove affection, or else you name it. Right? It, but it also appeals to pride by saying if you meet these expectations, if you exceed, you are better than other people. Look at how great you are in comparison. Right? And church, the church, is always at any given point in time full of people who think they're well on their way to spiritual maturity because they have had adhered to the right external stuff. They've got the right behaviors. They have met the expectations externally, but inside they aren't very mature at all because the thing that's motivating them is either fear of reprisal or pride. It's pride that I'm not like that guy. right? Or pride and look what I've accomplished and God owes me, which is a horrible way to live because anytime you get suffering, you you, you think "I, I must have blown it somewhere. Right? You can't can't handle suffering if you're a legalist. Now, the the reality is pride never motivates love for God because it, it makes our hearts impenetrable to His love because we can't be vulnerable if we're living in pride and we have to be vulnerable to accept love. And fear never motivates justice because you won't take risks to help somebody else in need if you are really fearful about yourself and your own reputation. 
And so Jesus refuses to elevate externals. He won't do it. But he also refuses to pit externals against the heart. See, this is essentially what not a legalist, but a liberal person will do. A liberal religion will come along and say, I don't, it doesn't really matter what we do. It doesn't really matter the behavior. It matters that we love God. Right? It matters what's on the heart. And so the liberal approach will say, we don't really have to worry about all that external stuff. It just matters that we're doing, we're doing it out of a good heart. And so the person who pits heart against external behaviors is really excusing themselves from accountability. Because they can say, look, I, I, can, I just relate to God my own way. Right? Which is precisely the point. It's relating to God our own way instead of God's way. Try loving a spouse or a friend your way. How good of a relationship do you end up with? It's not very good. Like, I like doing conflict my way. Yeah, well, it doesn't work very well, right? So notice that Jesus doesn't say that they shouldn't tithe. He doesn't excuse them from externals. But he says that what's wrong is that they shouldn't be greedy and wicked and that they should be giving out of their hearts. And so the external tithe is fine, but God is more concerned with a heart that loves God and does justice. So the person whose imagination then is captivated by love of God and by justice will always go beyond what's expected, not less. So if you ever find yourself asking this question, what is like the bare minimum I need to do to look like I'm doing okay, then you've got yourself an external behavior problem. You've got a legalism problem, right? If you ever find yourself, though, um, saying, you know, I just relate to God differently and excusing yourself from obedience, then you have to be careful that you've pitted externals against the heart and you have a, a whole other lawless problem. So Jesus wants his followers to, to follow him from the heart. He says, I want the inside and outside of the cup. I don't want just one or the other. I want both. But living this way, on majoring on the love of God and doing justice, of being clean inside and out, doesn't just happen for us if what we care most about is how we appear to others. And so Jesus levels another harsh critique against the Pharisee spirituality. He says this in verse 43. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. In other words, the reality of your heart The reason you're acting like this, the reason you're so concerned about the externals, the reason you're so consumed about managing your appearance and your image is that your desire is ultimately set on getting attention and affirmation from other people instead of getting affirmation from God. That your, uh, your, uh, Your desire is set on the applause of other people more than it is on what God wants in your life. And so uh, one of the most spiritually dangerous things that we can do, friends, is we can live for the applause of people. It's dangerous, first of all, because people are incredibly fickle. Maybe you've noticed this. I can love something one minute, and the exact same thing the next minute can just be so stupid. Like, what is that? It's human fickleness, right? And so the reality is that the more we think we need attention from people the less attention we will give to our own integrity because we will morph and shift to meet the changing expectations of those around us more than we will solidly stay within the obedient expectations that God has given us and empowered us to live out through his spirit. 
And this arena of relating to others and needing their attention and affirmation is an area where pride and fear come into play once again. See, the better the greeting in the market, the greater the seed of honor, whatever that is, whatever it is that says I'm a success and people recognize me, whatever it is that says I'm more awesomer than other people and people recognize it, Whatever that is for you, the greater your desire for that is, the more our pride is fed, and the more we feed our pride, the more we give room for fear. Because fear always follows pride. Because the reality is, when when we're living for you to stroke my pride, I'm always in danger of losing approval. Because what happens if I stop getting your approval and attention? I'm afraid of what I lose. And so we have to play this game of keeping up appearances for the, for the fear of losing approval and for the pride of receiving it. And guess what? It leads to just spiritual exhaustion. Living for a reputation more than reality will always exhaust us because whatever energy we spend on managing an image is energy we lose in actually renewing the self that God gave us to image him. And imaging him is what we're created for. We are created in his image to make visible the invisible attributes of our creator God and how we love one another and how we live out our stories. One of the very simple ways that we can combat this tendency is to try to give three times as much energy to being interested in other people than trying to become interesting to them. Just a simple thing in a conversation. If I'm spending three times more energy trying to ask questions and elevate them than I am trying to show how funny and interesting and smart and successful I am, the more we will actually habituate self-forgetfulness rather than self-importance. Jesus goes on in verse 44. He says, Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without even knowing it. What's he talking about? He says, when you live in a self-important way, when you refuse the self-forgetful way that God is offering us, you're actually leading people into, in, into uncleanliness. See, what would happen in ancient Palestine is they would whitewash a tomb. When somebody was buried, they would put like this limestone whitewash over the tomb so everybody would know like, dead body! (laughs) Don't go there! Walk around the dead body! Because when you came into contact with a dead body, according to the law of Moses, you were defiled. You were unclean. You had to go make sacrifice and do cleansing. and That's just kind of like a big hang-up in your schedule. Right? So you, you, you want to avoid coming into contact with something defiling. And so he's saying, look, you guys are a bunch of unmarked tombs. People are like walking into defilement anytime they come into contact with you. You're contaminating people. And the irony here is that for all of your concern with ritual purity, the way of life that you are living is actually drawing people into impurity just through contact with you. How harsh of a critique is that? I love this. One of the experts in the law, verse 45, one of the experts in the law answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. I love this guy. Like, like Jesus is at all concerned with insulting you. Like, what did you think was going to happen when you drew the attention to yourself? I love that Jesus just is not too worried about 
our sensitivities. It's actually worth being insulted by Jesus because he's actually trying to save your life when he insults you. Right? It, 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 we don't want to shy away from Jesus because his words are hard. Because a, a reliable insult is far more preferable to an unreliable compliment. And so Jesus says in verse 46, he replies, And you, experts of the law. <laughs> Whoa, okay. You, experts of the law, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Verse 50, therefore this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all of the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Old Testament, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. Jesus is getting pretty gnarly here. Right? Like, hey, happy new year. Like, aren't you so glad you came to church today? We're talking about um, how you can just not be a hypocrite this year. <laughs> like, wow. All right. Aren't you glad you trekked through the snow for this stuff? Jesus, turns out, is not worried about insulting this guy. And, uh, and so he says, your way of relating to God, dude, is actually loading people down with burdens so much so that you don't even do what you say and you don't lift a finger to help other people you build the tombs for the prophets and it's a way of saying you are aligned with your ancestors who killed the prophets in other words not only do you reject god's message you actually keep other people from hearing his message get this friends god's love god's message of grace and redemption is rejectable we can walk away from it. And Jesus can be rejected, but one of the things that most frequently keeps people from embracing Jesus and his message of his kingdom and his grace is people who turn God's story into a list of do's and don'ts. And the reality is, for these people, they have a list of expectations, they know everything on the list, and they offer very little help at actually doing it. They offer no example at living it out authentically. And so while it's spiritually dangerous to live for the applause of others, it's equally spiritually dangerous to set demands for others while failing to meet them ourselves and failing to offer help in meeting them. Expectations aren't bad. Expectations are a good thing. In fact, grace without any expectations is meaningless. But expectations without any grace is just crushing. Grace says, I see where you are. I see the standard and I see how you're struggling. Let me help you. Let me come alongside you. Let me share some example and offer you encouragement. Um, if you're a parent or if you work with young people or somebody who you are in some way leading and setting an example for it, let me, 
just say that Jesus' words here are very important for us. This is a clear warning for us. And I I, got to sit with this as a dad and go, whoa, how am I doing with this? How, How am I doing? Am I loading my kids with expectations but not helping them, not setting an example? Because loading a kid or someone vulnerable with a burden of expectation without setting an example for them to follow or encouragement of help will kill their souls and will embitter them. Because ultimately it will result in keeping them from knowing God at all. Because the people who are supposed to set an example of God's character and love and grace were the most powerful detractors from them ever wanting to know him. Because we set an expectation without an example or offer of help. This is a a gnarly warning for us. And so what do we do? I think the first thing we need to do is just do a gut check and say, are my expectations for the people around me accurate reflections of the Father's expectations? And then the second thing we need to do is we need to work hard to be transparent and recognize the fact that we also have failures. My wife and I say sorry a lot to our kids. When we mess up, we own it. You have to. Otherwise, we teach our kids it's not okay to fail, but it's okay to be a hypocrite. And so Jesus, uh, oh, the third, third thing that we do is we make sure that we're actually setting an example that's followable, right? Like, hey, I'm trying here. Let me try to show you an example for you to follow as well. Because the reality is more is caught than taught. We absorb more of what we see than what we hear. And so Jesus is saying that this generation that was rejecting his kingdom and preventing others from entering it, would be held responsible for all of the blood of the prophets. Because they were self-declared to be in the know when it came to religion, but they were missing the very presence of God who was right before their eyes at lunch. But Jesus leaves this conversation and he leaves room for them to make a decision for themselves. It says this in verse 53, Then Jesus went outside and the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Jesus sometimes is left without any recourse but to just leave, go outside, if we will not respond to his way and lay down our image management, because we've exalted externals. And so as we enter a new year and we face Jesus' pretty stern warning against living like Pharisees, we have a choice of how we will respond as well. So here's the question this morning. How do we apply all this? Um, A couple things for us this morning. Uh, Some of you have been listening and you've been waiting for that moment where the sermon will actually become applicable to you. Like, oh yeah, this is really good for my neighbor. This is really good for Jan. This is really good for whatever, Dave, definitely. Um, Some of you are thinking, this is really important for you, Matt. Uh, It is. It's so important for us because here's the deal. Sometimes we listen to Jesus' harsh words against people like Pharisees and it's easy to separate ourselves by years of history and distance culturally. But the reality is this, friends. If you think of yourself as a religious type person at all, if you think of yourself as having some handle on truth, and morality, then just like the Pharisees, you are always in danger of becoming like them. And so Jesus says these things, and Luke includes them in his gospel, not so we can feel better than Pharisees, 
so that we can be warned not to let our pursuit of truth and righteousness bend us towards a pharisaical way of life. See, Jesus leaves his most harsh words for the religious people. He goes, he's pretty easy on like the prostitutes and pimps and tax collectors, but when it comes to these guys, Jesus is harsh. Because on some level, these guys think that they represent God. And they do, and they're keeping people from knowing God. And folks, God has sent his church into the world to be a light and representation of his gospel. So friends, when we live like Pharisees, when we give in to the poison of hypocrisy, Jesus' harsh words come right to us. So the first thing you can do this morning, if you're here, is start with an assumption that Jesus' critique of the Pharisees is always relevant to you. It's always relevant to us. The moment we think it's irrelevant is the moment we're headed down a path of looking a lot like a Pharisee. And it means having an honest look both at the inside and outside of the cup. It's being willing to say, what's really going on? What are my real motivations? Where are fear and pride actually motivating my life? What's the real God of my heart? What's my heart really aimed at? Am I more concerned with reputation or the reality of embodying the gospel? So the first thing we do is we guard ourselves against the poison of hypocrisy. The second thing here is some of you are here today and you're not Christians. You, you, you haven't embraced the gospel for yourself. You're not yet a follower of Jesus in this part of your story, but you're checking him out. Maybe you're here skeptically. Maybe uh, you're wondering about him and that's good and that's fine. And I want, I want to invite you to, to be careful of something. Be careful that in all of your checking out Jesus, you don't stop investigating him because you have been snubbed by one of his followers. Don't stop searching for Jesus because you've seen his followers living more like Pharisees than his disciples. Because the reality is hypocrisy is in the church, but it's not here by Jesus' design. In fact, I would be as bold as to say it's in you too. Because it's not just something that's reserved for religious crowds. It's in every single person who feels, fails to meet the standards that they intuitively know they ought to meet. It's a spiritual dynamic that Jesus has actually come to heal. And the only way to heal a hypocritical heart is to become convicted of your own responsibility, of your own culpability in doing wrong. And it's only when Jesus' free grace, his unearned love becomes real to you that you can live transparently, admitting failure because you know that it's actually been forgiven, that it's been cleansed by what Jesus has done on the cross. That's what the cross is about. It's about him taking our place and us placing our confidence not in what people think of us, but in what he's done for us. That he lived a perfect life in my place. He suffered wrongly in my place. He's absorbed my imperfection and sin so that I can inherit his utter perfection and righteousness. So I want to invite you today to put your confidence there. Because when you do, you will have become a Christian. Maybe you're here and you find that maybe I actually have some legalistic tendencies uh, I've, I've actually elevated external behaviors o- over the heart, and, and I judge others by m- those external behaviors, and, and I feel really self-assured because I've done well at keeping them up. 
can I just invite you to not live that way anymore? Because it's just based on a lie. Like, there's just nothing you can do to the outside of the cup that will make up for the mess on the inside. Again, that is only set straight by Jesus Christ. But maybe you're here and you're not a legalist. Maybe you're actually unconcerned with externals altogether. Don't miss the reality today that in this passage, Jesus is calling us to the weighty matters of love and justice without neglecting the smaller. So don't let anything become an excuse today for disobedience from the heart. And then finally, some of you are just here and you can relate on the level of feeling challenged by always caring so much about what other people think of you. Welcome to the party. It's not very fun, is it? The reality is that if you're living a life that's always putting forth a hashtag us at our best picture, if you're always living under the yoke of having to manage perceptions, it's a burden and it's slavery. So how do you get free? Here's how you get free. You have to see Jesus standing in your place, yourself standing in his. And you have his affirmation and his approval from the Father. You hear the words, this is my beloved son or daughter, and they're words for you as well as him. You have his righteousness. You have his spirit, not of fear, but of adoption. See, the only way to get free from this is to recognize that you have reputation with the only judge that matters. And if you have reputation with the only judge who holds you to account, then what opinion of anyone else can throw you? Let me say that again. If you have reputation with the only judge that matters, what opinion of anyone else can really shake you? See, your problem then isn't what others think of you. It's what you think of the gospel. Amen? So ultimately, the only way we get free from self-importance and managing our image is to aim our confidence at the one who offers us his own image. And we allow him to conform us to his image each day. Because as we do, we become more authentically human the way we're meant to be. Let me pray for us as we head out into the snow that once again reminds us that he takes what's scarlet and makes it white as snow, the one who cleanses us all from sins. He's faithful and just to do it in Christ, his son, as we confess our sins to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for a new year, and we invite you, Spirit, to renew us in the image of your son, to cast aside the anxiety of always keeping up our own image, living in the transparency that comes with trusting your grace that it is sufficient, that it is enough, that none of us is exempt from failure and sin. All of us are invited into your righteousness and your grace. Pray for this church, this body, that your spirit would empower us to be transparent, authentic pictures of the gospel. You'd purify us from the the, the little hidden places of of hypocrisy, as we sang earlier, that your spirit would blow through the caverns of our soul, exposing those little places that want to hide out, that you would bring them to light, that could bring them to you, be loved in your presence and healed by the presence of your son, Jesus. God, we want to give you this year and we want to invite you to live in us powerfully for your sake and your kingdom. Amen.